Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the Obamas kick off their first production with Netflix, and the streaming giant signs Beyonce to a $60 million deal. But some predict streaming services may soon be out of reach for customers because of the cable-like fees. Country pop star Taylor Swift's celebrity pals come to her defense in her feud with big-time star manager Scooter Braun, while others say you need to calm down. An unlikely partnership takes on 1990s Boston's corrupt and racist criminal justice system in City on a Hill. Later in the show, a hoppy IPA, an amber ale, and a dry, dark stout. Beer and beer making is at the heart of a new family saga rooted in the heartland. Author J. Ryan Straddle's new book, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, is our June selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Callie. Glad to have you. Michael Jeffries, Associate Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Michael. Hi, Callie. Well, let's just jump right in because Netflix taketh and Netflix giveth. So Netflix has signed Beyonce, and they've just announced the Obama's first production, which is called American Factory. It's a Sundance winner from their Higher Ground production. So that's good news. They're still going along their original content. And by the way, I should say, this is in the context of a new study that just came out that said people going to the movies down 10% because... A, they're sick of the franchises, you know, so-and-so two, so-and-so three, so-and-so four, but also because of the lack of original content. So where have they gone? They've gone to streaming services for original content like Netflix. So as I said, they're bringing in Beyonce. The Obamas have done their thing. And they just announced that they're taking away The Office, which is quite a popular franchise. So here's how some fans might react to the news that The Office will be leaving Netflix in 2021. No, God! No, God, please, no, 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 no. Okay, I guess that says it all about (laughs) the popularity of The Office. So what they're doing is pumping up the original content, and as a result, they're also slowly pumping up the fees, and here we are. And the question is, um, now that our lives seem to be mostly streaming services, How do we think about that? Because it feels to me like we maybe are going into a cable monopoly once again. Yeah, it's very possible that we're going to be going backward and the bundling packages that we disdained from cable are actually going to be what people end up turning to. It's an interesting time, though, because the studios like NBC are pulling their content off Netflix, which, as you mentioned, is forcing Netflix 
to sign on more original content. So you've seen it with the comedy specials that they've done, the deals they struck with Beyonce and the Obamas. So we are seeing more things available for consumers, but our freedom to actually purchase them is being diminished. So on the one hand, it looks like we're getting more and more and more choices, but the cost is becoming increasingly prohibitive. So we've got to find some kind of middle ground between the array of choices that we want and what we can actually afford. And I think that's the danger, right, is that it's seen as this very democratic thing that's going to be good for consumers, but really you're going to be limiting who can actually get to the content. And the thing is, Rachel, that uh, we were told, or and it seems so, that we could pick and choose on a Netflix or a Hulu Plus or whatever and not have to have to take some things or lose anything. And yet here we are back. It's just it feels to me a little bit like cable dressed up, I have to say. Well, you yeah. know, it, it is a little bit cable dressed up, but it's also important to put it in a historical context, which is that. The technology keeps changing and cultural, mm. the ways culture is distributed keep, keep changing. And it's sort of, it's a way, I mean, it reminds me of this story once when I um, had to get a new cell phone and the guy said, do you want a new charging cable? And I said, no, my charging cable's fine. And he said, yeah, but that phone needs a different charging cable. And I got cranky and said, why does my new phone every time need a new charging cable? And this young man looked at me sternly over his glasses and said, you know why. (laughs) (laughs) And so I feel a little bit like that, right? It is an industrial like strategy to sort of change how things are technologically received. Um, Then you have to like spend money getting into the new thing. Um, I also just just wanted to give you a chance to respond to, I've not seen this. They just announced that the Obama's new first new production under their Higher Ground Productions American Factory, it's about and a factory, and uh, it's a, a it's nonfiction. Um, so that's an interesting choice, but I think it sort of aligns with what they say their purpose is, so this should be interesting, you know. It is interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and part of the new content that we're seeing, the, the sort of turn toward new content that we're seeing is people are getting their news about politics and socially conscious filmmaking in very different ways. Mm-hmm. So Ava DuVernay, of course, is the kind of quintessential example of this. Stars are being made who are telling these nonfiction political stories in ways that we haven't seen before and reaching consumers in ways that we haven't seen mm-hmm. before either, right? Because people are consuming these documentaries more conveniently than ever. And these documentaries have become really pop cultural phenomena in ways that very few of them before this time have been. So in in that respect, when it comes to nonfiction and political content, there's a lot of hope that more good stuff is getting to the masses. But right in this this economic context where things are being pulled off the service, we don't know how long that's going to last. Mm -hmm. We don't know how long filmmakers like DuVernay are going to see Netflix as their best option the way they see it as their best option right now. And we should say that uh, Ava DuVernay's latest is When They See Us, which is the fictional nonfiction retelling uh, using all the real documents of the uh, five young men who were accused of... uh, of uh, attacking the Central Park jogger, and they were eventually, um, that case was overturned, blah, blah, blah. So that's the story. After they served their time. After they served their time, you're right. I have to say, I balled my way through those four episodes. I can't get, I can't do it yet, so I'm I'm getting ready. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So so anyway, uh, speaking of pop culture and Swift's Taylor Swift, who is the ultimate pop culture queen, is in a couple of uh, public fights. One which it seems to me it'd be a little bigger than herself, but I don't know. Uh, she's in a fight with a big-time talent manager, Scooter Braun. I guess they had good relationships in the past, but now they don't. And her argument is that he bought all of her 
content control is, is the point of much of her work. And she is angry that she didn't get a chance to buy that back because she says that's the reason why she writes her own songs, so she can have ownership. So it's kind of a story about her because the some of her celebrity friends have said, hey, that's right, you're right. And many others have said, uh, uh, no, wrong. You could have done this or that, and you didn't. And it feels like a pushback of her in general. Maybe she's played out a little bit at this point. However that happens, like I think it's really important to bring to people's attention that people who create particularly popular music don't necessarily own the rights to it. And it's had important shaping cultural um, effects. For instance, now people have to who are sampling stuff in hip hop have to pay a lot to do it, and that means newer people can't sample the same stuff. Oh, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's and right. you know, another like aspect that I have just dealt with is, and this is just like a fascinatingly irritating thing, is that in even in like academic writing, if you quote say fiction, it's fine. But if you quote popular musical lyrics, you have to pay. And you have to pay $300 a quotation. And, and that's the world you live in. And that's the world I live in. Like <laughs> yeah, recently, yeah. you know, yeah. I wrote this book where I had to quote stuff. So I mm-hmm. just like used my initial royalties to pay to quote musical lyrics. Mm. And most of it does not go to the person whose song it is. Wow. Right? So Taylor Swift is reminding us about that, mm. that in the cultural industry, you have to sort of like realize that people who write music don't even always own their own stuff. Wow. That's my guest, Rachel Rubin, by the way, professor of American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She often writes about music, which is why she knows this. So, Michael, Rachel uh, raises a very important and contextual point. But there's a little bit to me in this of people annoyed with Taylor. Uh, she just came out with a new song, You Need to Calm Down, and she's professing all great alliance with LGBTQ communities and people. Many people have said, essentially, where you been? Yes. yeah, <laughs> and, and especially because some of her contemporaries have come out with a more aggressive supporting stance of LGBTQ folk long before she did. And now that it's a little bit politically safer, people are saying, well, it's convenient for you to do it now because it's more mainstream than it used to be. The video, of course, features celebrities like, I think Ellen Generous is in the video, mm-hmm. RuPaul is in the video. Uh, so very recognizable figures from the LGBTQ community. And it's part of a broader discussion about when pride is popularized and, mm-hmm. and becomes a kind of a a symbol of partying and fun rather than a continuing struggle for equality. And when Stonewall is memorialized, right, in in a certain way that erases the work of black trans folk of color, Mm. all of those discussions are wrapped up in Swift's sort of convenient attachment and branding right now, right? And And the kind of celebratory style that she strikes in the video is seen as somewhat shallow when it comes to the real issues that LGBTQ folk continue to face. There's, in this there's also another like really challenging part of her video, which is she also depicts anti-gay rights people, and she just depicts them as poor people. Mm-hmm. You know, like including this like standard quote hillbilly unquote trope of somebody who's missing his teeth. Yeah. And whenever I see people like dress like that, I want to say, oh, it's so funny when people don't have access to health to medical care, mm-hmm. you know. But meanwhile, we have like, you know, various rich mm. politicians right now who are the ones with the power who are actually doing harm. Right. She could have depicted them as Mike Pence. She could right? have depicted <laughs> them as Mike Pence or, well, you know. the other thing. People are annoyed with her because back in the day, before you need to calm down, 
Here is a live performance of the original version of Taylor Swift's 2008 song, Picture to Burn. The lyrics of the song were revised in later releases and performances. So, in case you missed it, she says, uh, you can be bad at me and I'll go tell people you're gay. Hardly an LGBTQ support statement. So, she got some work to do, I'm going to say. Yes, she does. <laughs> All right. At the same time, number one song that's been on the charts for about 13 weeks. Someone said this morning, I heard an analyst say, if it stays 17 weeks, it'll be uh, break some kind of record, is that from Little Nas X. Now, some people are thinking, I don't know who that is. Yeah, you do, because you've heard this song a billion times. It's so popular. And um, so we want to take a listen to uh, Little Nas X's Old Town Road. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached, head is mad at black, got the boosters black to match, riding on All right, so that thing is, you want to talk about an earworm, it's everywhere. Um, there was some controversy, as we discussed here, about the fact that he's a rapper and then did this country take, and people said it wasn't country enough, but it clearly is still selling and very popular. Well, he, he chose Pride, Michael, uh, Michael Jeffries of uh, American Studies at Wellesley College, to say, I am gay, I'm coming out, and um, he threw some hints, he said. People didn't seem to get it, so he just came right out and said, I am gay, and I want to uh, make that statement during Pride Month. Yeah, he actually mm -hmm. said that he had thrown a couple of hints, one on an actual song from the EP, and then the album art contains like a uh, it's sort of a city landscape, and one of the buildings has, uh, or several of the buildings have rainbow colors in them. So he released this on uh, social media, on his Twitter and Instagram page, saying, you know, I thought I told you a long time ago, something, something along those lines. <laughs> Two things I want to point out about this. One is it's important because it's actually tied to the debate about what genre he falls in. Because for, for decades, it seems like now we've, we've been saying things like, well, when is hip hop going to accept uh, a gay rapper? And in particular, mm -hmm. when we say that, we usually mean uh, a gay black man who's a rapper, right? Because there have been plenty of uh, queer performances in hip hop by women uh, for, for some time now. But it seems like that's the barrier that mainstream hip-hop has been more reluctant to cross. And in recent times, artists like Young Thug, for example, have really pushed back on some of the traditional gender performances we've seen among rappers. But at the same time, we're having this conversation in a hip-hop space because it's almost assumed that Lil Nas X is a rapper in the classic sense. But if you look at his career, he's not really coming from a traditional hip-hop background. He doesn't have like a catalog of underground tapes. He got his career started as a more of an internet celebrity who was becoming an influencer on Instagram and sharing memes. And that's how he first built his following. It wasn't based on any music, hip hop or otherwise. So it's a strange kind of conversation we're having where we're having it in the context of hip hop and blackness, but his career doesn't actually uh, follow the same path as so many of the hip hop artists who also kind of share that space. So many of the other names who often come up when we talk about these things. So, Michael, some people are thinking that it might hurt him now that he's come out. So you're saying because he just came different every single way. Perhaps not. Well, I don't think that's, I mean, we got to figure out who we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Who's it going to hurt him with, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm always very suspicious of this idea that the minute black folk hear someone is gay, they're going to back off and not buy the records anymore. That's been proven over and over again to be false. So that kind of uh, hysteria and anxiety about whether his black fans are going to continue to support him or not, I think we need to pump the brakes on that. Um, but 
I, I think the real question is because it's really a pop record and it's been seen as a child friendly record, mm -hmm. right? That's, an, that's another piece of this, right? Mm -hmm. I think when people say those things, they're saying, well, what about the folks who don't want their kids aware of or listening to mm. openly gay artists. That to me is the coded language that, we, that we're talking about here. The stuff about black folks still continuing to support this guy, it's like, I, I don't think that's even a relevant question. Well, it, it may be a relevant question, um, Rachel, for the white country fans that have mm -hmm. been supporting this record since it came out and too much controversy. Yeah. yeah, and I, you know, I sort of am, like, delighted by both things we're talking about. And one is how his song charted on country until the industry took him off that list. Um, but it, it really shows that, that the categories, as historically is true, have always been uh, created by industries. And I like it when people resist. And I can think of so many different, you know, times people have, especially when, you know, black musicians have wanted to be country and known they can't, you know, and like one of them is one of my favorite musicians. It's Bobby uh, Blue Bland. Mm, but, um, mm. you know, it, it's, it, it's really so it's wonderful to me when people sort of push back about that. Um, and, you know, the other thing is I completely agree with Michael that, you know, you know, there has been there is this tradition that we do need to sort of note in um, hip hop where, you know, I love Lil Wayne. I and sometimes when he mm. says no homo, I think he's like joking, but it's a it's a but thing. But it's there. Yeah. It's but there. It's there. there. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. But so that so the important shift, you know, the important category, it's a, it's a generational shift is what I'm trying to say hmm. that I think, but it's more hmm. than, you know, um, related to, I don't know, like race or a class or stuff like that. I think it's a, just a big generational shift happening. Well, I think as people understand that, you know, words matter, that they have to just pay attention to that, you know, it right. no longer can just, you can't just be saying stuff off the cuff just because because you think it's cute in a song right. anymore. I mean, right. it has great right. res. It always had resonance, but it really has resonance now because of what you just said. People are resisting that and, and pointing yes. it out. And I'm very happy about <laughs> yeah, that. Right. And you know, as I said, my my young daughter, who is was a musicology major in college, was just completely delighted by both of the ways he's resisting categories. Mm, that's great. I think a lot of people are. I think if so. you're If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Under the Radar pop culture contributors Rachel Rubin and Michael Jeffries. We're discussing the latest pop culture news you need to know. Well, a little local connection, at least even if it's not shot here in Boston, it's about Boston. It's a new uh, TV series called City on a Hill, uh, which many have described as a crime-ridden Boston before the miracle, before there were many changes here. So let's listen to uh, the trailer of Showtime, City on a Hill. It stars Kevin Bacon and Aldous Hodge. What was so bad about work? This is affirmative action, Hodge. This is the next mayor of Boston. Ask in jail time for cops. I want to rip out the machinery in this bullshit city. I want to tear it all down. What the f*** do you need me for? So, City on a Hill, it may seem like your typical Boston story, but it's quite carefully crafted around this time before there were some, people say, some overt uh, attempts to really address first of all, the crime, and also the the over the crazy level of racism here in Boston. They started with the Charles Stewart case, as, you know, they fictionalized it in the series, which is pretty interesting. This Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and another guy, a Boston native, Chuck McLean, who are behind this, 
with a writer on the show, Michelle McPhee, who some may know as a radio talk show host here in Boston from a number of places. She also has about four or five really gritty books about gross, you know, real stuff that's happened here in Boston. Uh, Murders and homicides and bad people. That's generally the thing that she writes about. So what's your take on it? I think it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. In reading some of the early reporting about the show and the interviews they've given, one of the things that the creators stress is that we need to think about Boston as less of one place and more in terms of the different neighborhood experiences. And I think if if that alone is a message that gets out mm-hmm. as a result of, of this series, I think that would be a good thing because I think the national perception of the city is very kind of stereotyped and concerned with a certain kind of hyper-masculine, white working class pride slash antagonism toward people of color. And that's real. That didn't go away when the corruption began to be reduced in the police department. Um, so there's reason for some of that stereotyping. But, but on the other hand, to argue that the city is the same now as it was 25 years ago is just false. And to, to argue that that representation is like the true representation of Boston is just an erasure of so many of the other communities that have lived here, not just now a- after the kind of changes, but but before then. So I think exposing the diversity in addition to some of the uh, storytelling about crime and corruption is what I'm most looking forward to in this series. Uh, it reminded me that I should explain the Charles Stewart uh, story. Uh, Charles Stewart was a white guy um, who killed his wife and then blamed it on a black man. And the city virtually shut down while they did a strip search uh, and grabbed black men randomly off the street uh, who obviously had nothing to do with it. Um, And this went on for some time until his brother outed him as the killer. Uh, Rachel. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's right. His brother went and, mm-hmm. you know, took outed him. And, you and know, the wife was pregnant, by the way. Go and ahead. the wife was pregnant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so I feel like, yes. And it's like really we have this like long, 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 long history in this country of creating this scary black man caricature. And it has been extremely culturally shaping. I'd like to see something challenge that. I also sometimes feel when you see like buddy movies that Mm. have one black person and one white person, it's like, look, we have both of them and their resources are the same and, you know, so on. So, I mean, we need to see how it pans out in that regard. Well, so far the critics are saying they're not allowing it to be Totally, but they have right. to work together, but they are right. not right. buddies in, right. the, in the sense that you might think they are by looking at it. So there is that. Now, I love nothing more than a viral sensation, you know, based on just somebody's little idea. So one of them that I love is this new thing called Beyonce's assistant. This relates to Kevin Bacon. I'll tell you in a minute. (laughs) So one of Beyonce's fans came up with a game called Beyonce's assistant. And what you have to do is follow this plan, answer some questions and don't get fired. And you get fired by choosing the wrong hotel for her to stay in, the wrong people for her to go and whatever. It's all fictional. She made it up. I think it's interesting that Chrissy Teigen, who is somewhat of a celebrity of herself and, of course, knows Beyonce said she failed the test. She didn't last through three rounds. (laughs) So you have to really be a Beyonce fan. I just love this viral kind of stuff, which reminded me, as I was explaining to my young producer of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Right. I when, thought of that too, When right celebrities away. just said, okay, how many movies has so-and-so been in with Kevin Bacon? We just mentioned Kevin Bacon in City on a Hill. So this kind of stuff happens all the time. I think it's fun, but does it have deeper meaning that I'm missing? <laughs> I mean, I think it helps fans feel connected to each other just as much as they're connected to the celebrities because they're all going through these kind of same experiences of trying to participate and uh, filling in the answers to these memes. 
teams. And that's such an important part of stardom, right? And we talk mm-hmm. about the beehive and yeah. <laughs> all the other, right? <laughs> I mean, that's really what this is about, building a community of, of people, uh, not only who have the same kind of level of intensity with respect to their fandom of the music, but who feel some kind of shared connection in the experience of fandom itself. I mean, th- that's really what these things are designed to do. And the fact that it's created not by the artists. See, this is the genius yes. of yes. the social media world, right? It used to be that artists had to invest in marketing, promotion, and things like this. But now fan communities are doing so much of that work for them. And it's why the model has flipped where the expectation is that you already have a following before you become a star. Right. It used to be that the production company made you a star first and built a following for you. Now, if you want to be a star, you have to build a following and then the company will pay you for the movie, the record album, the record, et cetera. I wanted to give give credit. It was started by a fan named Green China, and it's officially called Choose Your Own Adventure Beyonce Edition. And the simple task is being Beyonce's assistant for the day. Don't get fired. Rachel. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, my sort of reaction to this went in two directions. And one is exactly what Michael said about how, like, fandom can bring people together. And it just made me picture this sign that used to be in a room when I sang in church choir where you put your robes on and it said, music brings us together. And I think that's beautiful. And then on the other hand, there's like a more cynical side of me that thought, you know, I bet this was actually started by someone who works for Beyonce to get her attention. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure. There's no way to know, right? But like... You know, both of those things. And and even if that is true, the first thing is still true, right? Fans piled on, started talking to each other. You know, it's a way of people coming together. So And demonstrating how much they know, how that much they real, it really know. Um, no and, comment from Beyonce as of yet that I know about. I will say Kevin Bacon for years didn't like it and recently did an interview and said, after a while, he was like, this is actually kind of flattering. <laughs> so he got into it because he had nothing to do with it either. Some other fan started it. Along the same lines, there's this thing that's going on where if you have a smartphone, um, I think it may be particular to Apple, but I'm not sure. There's something called AirDrop. And if you leave it on, I didn't know people could just leave it on, but I guess you can. If you leave it on, various other people can drop stuff into your AirDrop. So now it's a big teen thing where, you know, you're minding your own business, your airdrops on, and any teen in your immediate vicinity sends you all kinds of crazy stuff. Not not mean stuff, just fun stuff. What do you think about that? It, I think that's never, it's never happened to me, but my surprise in reading how prevalent it is, I think just... It, it woke me up as to how distant I am from right teenagers. Because I think that for many people in my generation and older, we think of sharing things on your phone as a kind of indicator of, of privacy and connection. Yeah. Like even if it were just a meaningless thing, like a like a meme or a funny news story or whatever it might be, you wouldn't just blast that out to every contact that you have. You would send it to a few targeted people who might really get it. But that's not how these people are using their phones anymore. They're they're using it as a tool just for kind of uh, social, digital social play. And these walls of privacy that we assume are in place for everyone are really not there for uh, people who are, right? Yeah. They're just not yeah. there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's a thing. I'm sorry to yes. interrupt no, go you. Ahead. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it, this is, is hard for me to wrap my mind around because I still have a flip phone. 
You know? Oh, my God. I know. I, and this is like it's useful to me, you know. And, and so I'm very torn about this because like very frequently, let's say I'll be out on the street walking and somebody will be pushing an adorable baby and staring at their cell phone at the same time. And I want to say, no, you're supposed to say, look, there's a squirrel, you know. Um, so I, I sometimes get upset because people seem to be just like very in their own like little slot staring yes. at their phones too many places, whereas this way is a kind of interaction with other people, right? So in some ways, like, I feel, like, a little positive about it. Okay. Well, I, well, I, I never have my airdrop on, so they can never reach me. I didn't even know that was yeah. a thing, so I guess maybe I'll do it now and see what happens, just for the fun <laughs> of it. I just love these little sort of cultural connection things. I do, too. So something else that uh, does shouldn't be mind-blowing, but it is, uh, we're coming up on August, and it'll be the... Uh, first anniversary of what was called Asian August last uh, year when Crazy Rich Agents came up out and several other stars of Asian descent suddenly were given great roles. And there was a lot of conversation about breaking open um, what seemed to be what was going to happen back in the time of uh, the Joy Luck Club, but didn't really. Anyway, right now, Himesh Patel is in this big blockbuster film called Yesterday. And a lot of critics have not loved the film, but everybody loves him. And what we're paying attention to is that he's South Asian and he's playing the main character. And his character, Jack, wakes up to find that no one remembers the Beatles except for him. Why she had to go, I don't know, she wouldn't say. I said something wrong now I long for yesterday when did you write that I didn't write it Paul McCartney wrote it the Beatles who the Beatles the what I can't wait to see this I don't care what the critics say if this was colorblind casting that you know and he ended up with rolling by the way that's he really can sing he was singing and that was one of the reasons he got the part Michael is this a another breakthrough uh, I think it is. Yeah. I, I hate the term colorblind casting. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I think I think it is another another breakthrough. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting about this is the fact that he's South Asian and not just Asian. Because I think the superstardom of Crazy Rich Asians was associated with a certain East Asian aesthetic mm -hmm. and experience. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's so much diversity in the category of Asian to expose audiences at a commercial level to that diversity is meaningful in and of itself. The other thing is. Amy Tan gave an interview about the success of Joy Luck Club, you know, what is it, 30 years later for almost, yeah, it's been, yeah, it's been a years, while, yeah. right, 30 mm -hmm. years later. Yeah. And she said, you know, very presciently, I think, that the critical acclaim that we, the Asian American artistic community, have already been receiving for generations, that's, that wasn't the breakthrough in the same way that Crazy Rich Asians was. The proof was the money that it made at the box office. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of depressing to hear that that's what it took when the critical acclaim has been yeah. there for generations. But... I think she's right, right? Yeah. I mean, that movie does seem to have changed the conversation in the landscape of big-budget film. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you about that. Um, I feel like, although it, like it's a little depressing to think, like there was that huge gap, right? Like yes. Joy Luck Club came out, nothing, nothing, nothing really big, mm -hmm. you know, and then Crazy Rich Asians. Um, and I hope that it will, uh, ch I hope that it'll change. The thing about uh, yesterday, the uh, movie that, uh. that delights me is, you know, one thing about the Beatles at a certain point, you know, when the counterculture was going on was like they went to India and mm. brought back Indian culture wow. to 
British people and American people in their music, like they incorporated mm. instruments. And now they've sort of flipped that. Now they have an Indian guy bringing the Beatles, right, <laughs> to England. So that sort of, de- that tickles me. That sort of delights me. Well, I'm with you on that. I can't wait to see it. Uh, what what also delights me, here's how we're going to end on, a, on an up note, is the news that one day at a time, it's going to be renewed. This is uh, the theme from One Day at a Time, the remake, which centers on a Cuban-American family living in Los Angeles. One day at a time. 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 It was on Netflix. Netflix dumped them. Fans went crazy. I'm one of them. And now uh, another network called Pop TV is bringing them back, the whole cast. It's so, so good. What makes it so good, Kelly? Uh, the casting <laughs> is excellent. The scripts are excellent. You know, how can you lose? The main character is Justina Machada. I was not familiar with her, but there are so many other people in the cast that are just wonderful. You know, sometimes you can remake stuff and it's not good, Rachel. This I know. is excellent. I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, have you I'll two never you. seen it? I have not. I haven't seen it. I mean, I, I don't know much about the original either. So it's gonna, oh. I think I think I think that's going to be a huge piece of this, right? The attention that it's getting now is yes. going to allow people to go back and look not only at the show, but also, I mean, it's a, the family is Cuban, right? Yes. Right. I mean, so there's a whole lot of stuff to explore lot. with respect and to they're the doing ni- it. Yeah, the 1970s <laughs> experience yeah. and what's happening yes. uh, right now. So they're doing sure. it. And Rita Marino plays the uh, grandmother, and she's fabulous. Yeah. So yeah. I just can't. I'm just thrilled. So that's an up note on pop culture. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both for joining me. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Rachel Rubin is professor of American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Michael Jeffries is an associate professor of American studies at Wellesley College. Coming up, Helen Calder is the hardworking, sophisticated owner of one of Minnesota's most popular beer companies. Nobody would suspect she is the well-to-do sister of Edith Magnuson, a down-on-her-luck small-town pie maker. How their very different lives came to be is the satisfying story of the Lager Queen of Minnesota. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. Pie and beer shape the fortunes of two estranged sisters in a family saga which traverses decades and generations. J. Ryan Straddle's second novel, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, is a story of grit, heart, and perseverance, and of course, beer. It's the perfect addition to your summer reading, and it's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Arthur J. Ryan Straddle joins me now from KCSN in Northridge, California. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Oh, excellent. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you. Love the book. Oh, thanks. It's a page turner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just start this way because the title suggests that maybe it's really kind of a historical thing. It's really a novel, but the Lager Queen of Minnesota made me think, oh, well, this must be based on a real story. Mm. But it wasn't, right? No. 
It's based on what I would have liked to have happened. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so how did it come to be that you wanted to write about uh, beer and beer making in this way? Well, I've become really fascinated with all of the new breweries popping up around the U.S. I noticed a lot of them on my tour for Kitchens of the Great Midwest, my first novel, which took me to a lot of small towns and mid-sized cities throughout the Midwest and the Great Lakes area. And uh, I didn't know at the time what a robust history of brewing that region had and most of the U.S. has had. I think it was only in the last year or two that we passed the record for a number of breweries in the U.S., which was set in the 1880s. And so the expansion of brewery culture is really kind of a hearkening back to U.S. history. But it's also, <laughs> as, a, as a beer drinker, been overdue. <laughs> I was born in 1975, and uh, there weren't a lot of choices back then. And uh, what did exist up through my high school and college years was pretty much the same. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm sure you have a similar story in, in Massachusetts, but growing up in Minnesota, we had a couple of varieties of regional lagers, and that was about it for a very long time. So I'm guessing you weren't too picky back in the 1970s. Oh, well, uh, I mean, my parents weren't, you know. Uh, But by the time (laughs) I started drinking beer in the 90s, it hadn't really changed that much. There were a few craft brewers or independent brewers starting to break out, but it was still very much a choice between, you know, Miller, Bud, and then in Minnesota, Grain Belt and Schmidt and Ham's. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm barely, I, I don't drink beer, so I know the names. And around here, we have a lot of craft breweries. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm I'm familiar in that way. So I was just quite taken with either made-up history or whatever history you crafted in this novel was pretty interesting uh, just to follow. And certainly, what one thing that really interested me was uh, your knowledge of beer, period, beer processing, beer making. How long did it take for you to become so knowledgeable about uh, it? A couple years. I spent a lot of time researching this book, (laughs) put on a few pounds, and uh, visiting (laughs) brewers, talking with brewmasters, and having them walk me through the process in their own breweries. Uh, It was something I really wanted to get right because I had a feeling if I'd get it wrong, my audience would remind me a lot. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But it also (laughs) occurred to me how much I didn't know about beer as, as I'd started researching this book. I wanted to write about beer in particular because of its ties to the Midwest and the Great Lakes area where I grew up. But I didn't know any of this process going into writing this book. This, all of this is new to me. So the story where we learn about the process of beer and the, the craft brewery business and all that goes with it is really fashioned around two main mm-hmm. characters, Helen and Edith, and to some extent Diana, uh, the granddaughter mm-hmm. of Edith. And I wondered if you would just uh, read a little bit. Um, this is a passage about Edith, and it's uh, set in 2003, as your helpful chapter title alerts me. All of your chapters have a time period because you go back and forth between Edith and Helen and Diana to some extent. But this is early on in the book, and this is Edith, who's become pretty well known as a brilliant pie maker, and uh, but she's making it for the facility that she works in, which is a nursing home, and she mm-hmm. goes in to negotiate a higher salary because of the popularity of the pies. Don't worry about me, Stanley said. I don't have to use the stovetop. And if I do, I'm the one who should be making dinner. I'm the one who's home all day. It was sweet of him to say, but she didn't want him going anywhere near anything hot or sharp anymore. He had worked full-time all these years, so she only had to work part-time. And now it was her turn to help him. She had to. Besides their children, they were all they had. 
She spread the one-ad section across the chipped green dining room table, and for a moment, she wanted a mother, a father, and a sister again, but there were no ads for that want. And thank goodness, because if her sister had put something in the paper that read, it wasn't my fault, please talk to me again, Edith would start to cry. At the moment, she couldn't afford to dwell on all that. What was important was that there were no halfway appropriate jobs for her that week, and it'd be seven days now before she could look again, and if there were none next week, seven more days after that. She briefly comforted herself with the thought that stretching pennies was one of her two great talents in life. Stanley called her a miracle worker, but there was nothing spiritual about it. She looked at money like how a motorcycle driver looks at asphalt. The more of it you see, the farther you can go, but a single mistake with it can finish you. She wouldn't make that one mistake now. That's my guest, J. Ryan Straddle. He's the author of The Lager Queen of Minnesota. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Now, people can hear that you're a man <laughs> and that your main characters are all women, which is a little different. Um, usually, I don't get too many male authors who write from a female perspective, but you very much do. Uh, talk about that, if you would. Yeah, it's very important to me, and it's very personal I grew up with a mother who was an aspiring writer. In fact, she went back to college in her 30s to get an English degree. And um, she'd read her homework to me as bedtime stories. And I remember the first time she submitted a poem for publication. It was published, how proud I was of her. I brought that poem to show and tell twice, <laughs> I think in third and in fourth grade. And um, she'd always wanted to write a novel, but she passed away. Uh, she died of cancer about uh, 15 years ago and never got the opportunity, had only barely started even make notes about what she'd write about. Uh, most of what she'd intended to write was just, you know, still in her head and some of, some of it she told me about, but no, uh, that was one dream of hers that couldn't happen. So I feel like as a writer, and someone influenced by a writer parent, I think about her a lot, and I feel like this book is an extension of me wanting to um, further her legacy, and all of my writing is, um, in essence, an exercise to keep her alive <laughs> uh, and to communicate with her. Uh, so she finds her way into almost all of my characters, and. One major reason most of my characters end up being women uh, is because I want my I, <laughs> I want to talk to my mom and I want mm -hmm. her alive in my books and um, I also want to create the sort of books that she would have read and enjoyed if she were alive to read them. Well, you know what's interesting is that. And I mean, no offense to other male authors, but they usually get it really wrong <laughs> in the oh. dialogue, <laughs> in the interaction between women. And you seem to have a very deft hand at this. So does does it take a lot for you to get yourself in the heads of women or how they would speak to each other or inter interact? Hmm. You know, I don't think about it. <laughs> I just write people. <laughs> it's not, I'm going to say, I've seen some bad stuff from men trying to write about oh. women. Or oh, write sure. from yeah, the perspective yeah. of women. I really have. Oh, sure. So have I. Yeah. <laughs> and I think where writing gets bad in that regard, you know, either men writing women or women writing men or well, people too. writing outside yeah. of their own experience in general is, um, is when they get stereotypical. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know any stereotypical women. <laughs> and I certainly wasn't raised by one. I feel like when I think about the kind of work that my mother would have liked to do and uh, the kind of life she had and the kind of work she enjoyed and the kind of work she wrote, it evokes for me types of people that, you know, certainly aren't representative of all women. I mean, certainly people read this book and go, I don't know any women like this. And that's a perfectly valid response. But they're like the women I grew up around. Mm -hmm. And I deeply love them. And (laughs) I've tried really hard to faithfully create them and embody them in my work. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Jay Ryan Straddle, whose second book is The Logger Queen of Minnesota. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. Now, you've talked about the place you grew up, how much you care about that place and care about representing it and the women who you know, live there and, and were of the place. But you live in L.A. now. So so yeah. how do you manage to keep channeling those experiences from the Midwest? Because one of the things that people say about your books, I've just been looking around and readers really appreciate what they call a, quote, unquote, Midwestern take. Mm. Well, I, I go back a lot. I go back several times a year. And uh, I think my friends there and relatives there are getting hip to how much I take in when I'm there. (laughs) I just, I was just there a few weeks ago and I went out to dinner at a new restaurant with uh, a chef friend of mine, Amy and her husband, Jay. And at one point Amy turned to me and said, are you writing this down? (laughs) What we're saying, (laughs) you know, because she knows I have a way of overtly or covertly taking in conversations and things I'm observing. And, um, they're getting, you know, sensitive to how I'm processing the information that seems otherwise conversational. I, I can understand it, but <laughs> I need to be sensitive to their concerns. I certainly don't have any characters that are 100% based on real-life people. And so what I'd, whatever information or facts I do get from someone's life gets put in a blender and uh, hopefully is unrecognizable to just about anyone except for the person who will be the unnamed inspiration. I think people mean more of the vibe or the sense of the place. I mean, there Mm. are books written from the sense of the place in Boston, you can really tell. And so that's what people are responding to, not that you stole people's stories. (laughs) Oh, sure, sure. (laughs) I I, I just think the individual stories and the details of them evoke place. You know, when I hear the way uh, some of my friends or relatives talk about Oh, what the, where the best church to buy lutefisk or, or the best <laughs> church to eat lutefisk is at, you know, and hearing their discussions over and their descriptions of these places evoke a place to me. But I, I do agree there's no uh, substitute for going back and physically putting yourself in there. And uh, I scouted locations for Lager Queen. I remember driving on Highway 10 where I put Helen's Brewery and thinking about, oh, where would this brewery go on this, which side of the road? <laughs> and what's the nearest restaurant to here that would serve the beer? And I you know, figured that kind of stuff out by physically putting myself there. Well, I mean, you really do feel a sense of the place down to the crickets. You know, you really, you really made us, you know, you've taken us there. So it's, and it's very interesting because L.A., as we all know, is very different uh, from the Midwest. Oh, yeah. So that's quite a feat. Uh, one of the things that I appreciated and others I've noticed have paid attention to is that um, when you write your characters, you 
are not afraid to really be very specific about the ways in which working class people live and working poor specifically have to live. And there is some of that that is attached to your your main character. So I wonder if you would read the chapter with Diana. This is set in 2007. I don't give away any spoilers in the book, so... People know two oh, no. estranged sisters. This is the granddaughter of one of them, of Edith. You have to read to figure out how this all goes together. But this is Diana living with her grandmother, and they're having a tough time. And by the way, your chapters are all titled with money figures. So this is $92.27. So people understand the chapter is $92.27, Diana, 2007. That's interesting, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I was very conscious of that. One of the things that uh, influenced this book were wanting to see more working class and lower middle class characters in fiction. It seems there's a lot of wealthy or comfortable people and a lot of abjectly poor people. <laughs> but I, I didn't see a lot of people who grew up in the circumstances I grew up in in Minnesota, which was, you know, uh, quite frankly, struggling for a good point, a good part of it. And, yeah, I was really motivated to capture some of those details and, um, you know, put those characters in my book with the sort of problems they would have. Well, give us a taste on page 106. Even when she grazed on the job, Diana was starving when she came home. Her grandma worked part-time at Kohl's and a few times a week at the local Arby's. And on those days, she brought back Arby's for dinner. But since her car's transmission crapped the bed, she took the bus because she lived over a mile from the nearest bus stop, and that meant the food would be cold when she got home. Diana didn't grow up in a big house and wasn't jealous of the kids who did, but now sharing a one-bedroom apartment with her grandma made her little family's two-bedroom rambler back in Hastings feel like a mansion. Her grandma slept on the couch's hide-a-bed, insisting that Diana have the bedroom, which was incredibly generous, and every time Diana opened that bedroom door, she felt like she'd better earn it. After going through the mail last summer and seeing the amounts on her grandma's unpaid and overdue bills, she got that job at the coffee shop. Of course, the only way Edith would ever accept help with a bill was when Diana just paid it herself. Edith would have never asked Diana to pull her weight or chip in or anything like that, but it wasn't like Edith to talk about important things. Even when they stumbled across something that had belonged to her mom, and there was this raw, gleaming instant, where they could acknowledge this incredible loss they'd suffered together, a loss that created their whole unlikely living situation. Edith would laugh to herself and change the subject. She'd had enough pain in her life, she said, and just wanted things to be pleasant. Most days, Diana watched her grandmother's weary body push open the door after a shift, carrying their groceries or dinner, and agreed that it would be unkind to remind them both of something so sad. That's my guest, Jay Ryan Straddle whose book, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, is our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. I mean, I thought these scenes, and they're very embedded all through your story, were really important in many ways, just to remind people that everybody just doesn't have access <laughs> to everything mm-hmm. they need all at once. And it, it, mm-hmm. didn't, it wasn't flashy. It just was there. And, and I'm sorry to say that it shocked me in realizing that I just don't see this much in a lot of novels that I read. Yeah, I don't see it either, which is why I wrote it. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't often see it set in the Midwest either when I do see it. That's Um, correct. Yeah, you're right about that. Or or if it is portrayed, it's portrayed as a very temporary situation that a character quickly evolves out of and not a lingering 
situation or not a, a state of being or a lifestyle. That's correct, too. You're, you're right. Somebody wins the lottery and then it's all over and then they go on. Sure. You run a writer's group called Hot Dish yeah, in L.A. Yeah. Because you So for writers who talk about, who write about food, and in this case you're writing about a beverage. So how did that come together and why are you, I guess, so compelled to write about food? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with the second half of that question. I grew up in a household where food was very perfunctory. It was nutrition. <laughs> and I suppose we were lucky to have nutrition when I look back and think about it. But things were extremely unsophisticated and, <laughs> and extremely bland. I've joked in the past that my mom's favorite spice was butter. <laughs> and, you know, even as my parents became more successful personally, they each returned to college as adults. My mom in her 30s, my dad in his 40s, and got better jobs after acquiring uh, and earning college degrees. Uh, the food improved a little bit, but uh, not the variety. And I just had a sense that there had to be a better way. <laughs> I think Ruth Reichel has a similar story. I, I feel like um, some of us who grow up and you know, I don't know if I want to call Hastings, Minnesota a food desert per se. I mean, it, it had a very... Um, wonderful and robust examples of, of, of food tradition, but I really wanted to try new things. And as soon as I could drive, as soon as I got my driver's license, my high school girlfriend and I were going up to the Twin Cities every weekend and trying Thai food, Ethiopian food, Japanese food, uh, German food, Spanish food, uh, or at least the Twin Cities <laughs> version of it. And I was blown away. I felt like, you know, a high school foodie or, you know, Midwestern food tourist, whatever you want to call it. But I was so impressed at what the world had to offer that I wasn't exposed to at home. You know, I know other kids like, you know, I, I went to concerts too. I did normal teenage things, but I spent a good amount of my disposable income that I earned at places like uh, Sam Goody, you know on food, on restaurants, because um, I was so smitten with um, the fact that um, there were choices out there. And that also motivated the creation of the reading series Hot Dish that you mentioned. My friend Summer Black Kumar and I, we uh, attended a reading in Los Angeles in 2009 where there wasn't enough seating, there wasn't anything to eat or drink. <laughs> And uh, there was no intermission. There was no mingling time. And so we wanted to create a reading series that captured all of these things, where people would bring food, where it would be a potluck. The writers who, would, who were reading were encouraged to bring recipes. Uh, there'd be different themes, food themes. There'd be intermissions. There'd always be enough to eat and drink for everyone, both alcohol and non-alcoholic beverages. And we were just basically responding to what we weren't seeing in the literary scene in Los Angeles at the time, which was a literary series as a social event and as a food event. And, um, you know, as big fans <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of food writing and of uh, eating and, and cooking food, we, we thought, oh, we're the people to do this, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, you live in a place that you certainly have lots of choices. And I, I wonder if people, because I know that hot dish happens to be a Midwestern term as well. So I think it's yes, kind of interesting yes. yeah. that you name your series that. Yeah, it harkens back to um, 
uh, what we call casserole in Minnesota. Uh, my, my friend author uh, Lindsay Hunter gave me the idea when she was on her book tour in 2009, and we were discussing this plan, uh, this nascent plan for what became the Hot Dish series, and it was she that proposed the name, so I have to give full credit. What do you want people to take away from the Lager Queen of Minnesota? I certainly learned a, a lot about beer, I'll tell you that, and uh, I have a great appreciation now for the process of making it. But from from a person uh, like yourself who's really quite has a great palate, uh, both from the food and now the beer side, uh, what would you like your readers to very much pay attention to? That there's something for everybody, both in terms of beer and in terms of uh, paths to success or satisfaction. I feel like one of the one of the things I didn't know about beer was the variety of it. And I hear from a lot of readers. A lot of my readers uh, from kitchens have told me, oh, "I'm looking forward to your new, your, your new book, but I don't drink beer." And <laughs> and I think, "Oh, that's okay." You know, uh, well, for, for starters, Edith, one of my main characters, hates beer <laughs> as well. <laughs> And so, yeah, you certainly don't have to like beer to like the book. But one of the things I did want to expose readers to, especially readers that, you know, and I would have been this kind of reader a few years ago, is a variety of beer is the choices out there that, well, you know, what you think is beer is not just, you know, the only game in town anymore, especially at these smaller breweries. They're trying new things. They're uh, uh, expanding and uh, redefining what beer is. And uh, check it out. You might like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly did. And it's a great book. And I think all of my listeners will enjoy it as well. So thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate the kind and uh, intelligent and generous questions. J. Ryan Straddle is the author of The Lager Queen of Minnesota, his second novel. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It will be available in bookstores and online July 23rd. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.